Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 412. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 412 you're listening to. My guest today is Nathan Rule, who is a sound designer, re-recording mixer, and founder of This Is Sound Design, a facility located in Burbank, California. And he has worked on a number of independent and major films, and he is our guest today. We're going to talk all about his journey from a farm in Illinois to where he is currently located in Los Angeles and all the steps in between. Nathan Rule coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about detours. So as audio professionals, we kind of chart a path of where we want to go, how we want our career to be shaped the beginning, the middle, the end, so to speak. But as many of you know, it's not always a straight line. It's not always an A to B type situation. Detours happen, shit happens, life gets in the way. Some of these detours are welcome, some of them are not. Some of them are minor, some of them are disastrous. It could be everything from the welcome of a new child into your family, or it could be disastrous like a tornado or a medical diagnosis that really takes you out of the business for a number of years while you recuperate. And sometimes in our detours, we have epiphanies and changes of heart about our path. And that's totally understandable. The trick is, I think, if a detour occurs in your life, assuming you want to carry on post-detour with your audio plans, the trick is is to not let that detour completely take you out and dissuade you from pursuing what it is that you set out to do in the beginning, pre-detour. You know your own strengths, you know your own weaknesses, and it's important too to not let others completely derail your plans while you're in the midst of a detour. Let's face it, the audio world is a bit of an entrepreneurial type business in some respects, in many respects actually. and. Sometimes the rewards are not seen to those on the outside. I know the satisfaction we all get from doing audio, but sometimes the financial rewards are slow to come, if at all, right? And that, that's a deeper conversation about money management, which, you know, I've been down that road with you, but maybe we'll address that at a later time. So for now, let's stay on the detour concept. The thing to remember is, is the audio business, as many of you know and are fully aware of, it can be a challenging business. Walls get put up all the time. And if you figured out how to go around the walls or over the walls, then you probably have it in you to get around or over the detour. Definitely, there is a difference between detours and challenges of walls being put up, etc. And I think most of all, what I want all of you to get out of this is the encouragement to see through the detour. Because it's inevitable. Detours will happen. And it's going to piss you off. It's going to uh, make you sad. But as I said before, you know, not all detours are unhappy or unwelcome ones. 
you know, like the birth of a kid and the time and devotion that it takes to raise a kid. Now, I've figured out with my wife how to make that work so that my detour as a parent is not something that stops me from doing my gigs as an audio professional. But sometimes that's not always possible and not everybody's gonna have the same situation as me. So if you have to take the time out to raise a kid, by all means, do that. That's an important monumental thing in life and it takes a lot of skill to do it right. But as we all know, kids grow and kids eventually move out of the house. I say now with a 14 and a 16 year old, looking ahead to the days when they're gonna be independent, uh, but treasuring every moment in between. So anyways, I could go on and on and on, but the point is, is be aware of the detours, differentiate between challenges and detours, and remember, know how to see the detour through. As disastrous as a detour can be and life-changing, there is the other side of the detour. And if you still have a passion for audio, don't let anybody stop you from jumping back in the pool after the detour comes to a close. And for those of you that are in the middle of a detour, positive or negative, stay focused, stay positive, know what your plan is when you get to the other side of the detour. And we'll see you on the road. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link. 
Book me in for an hour on a Zoom call and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Nathan Rule here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into it. You were brought up in Illinois, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was brought up in kind of south central Illinois on a working farm with livestock and uh, grain farming. Yeah, so kind of a unique upbringing. And actually, I... I grew up on a farm that went back four or five generations. And actually my family goes all the way back to the, they came over here in the 1760s. So I grew up on the last farm of a lineage that went back all the way pre-revolutionary war of every single person was a farmer. And in a nutshell, why do you think that that lasted so long and then, then he, but you didn't carry on the tradition? Yeah. I mean, truthfully, it's a has a lot to do just with the economics of of farming and family farming. And the county I grew up in, when my dad started out and when I was young on the farm, the entire economy of that county, Jersey County, Illinois, was farming, essentially. Mm. There were about 100 family farms. By the time I graduated high school, there were maybe a dozen left or so. So it was really just a dramatic shift towards industrial agriculture that took place. And many, many families sort of just had no choice but to, to get out of farming. So that was really what dictated it. And in fact, so by the time I was in high school, my dad had actually given up on farming and, and actually had moved over to contracting and was actually working on houses and building houses. Oh, okay. There was a transition there that was sort of dictated by the external economics and livestock prices and et cetera, et cetera. So though actually, interestingly, farming is a lot more profitable again than it was. It was kind of a window of time where it kind of pushed a lot of families out. So that was the reason. I mean, I think, you know, you always wonder if the farming business had been booming, would I have ended up going the direction I went? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I wonder what in that time period, like high school, you know, around graduation, where were your interests? So actually, the sort of start of this, what ultimately led me to Hollywood and working in sound and movies is that, well, first of all, I got in, involved in scouting. And in scouting, I actually became a camp counselor and I was started doing a lot of performance at summer camp. And I had a lot of friends that I got to know through scouting who were involved in theater. There's a lot of crossover from theater and scouting, actually. And so through those relationships that I had, I uh, started to get interested in theater because it seemed cool. And I had gotten kind of used to performing and kind of being in that in front of the audience kind of feeling at camp. And so it just led me to go try out for theater and through theater. Then I started to get into music. I actually grew up in the Baptist church in some churches that were very, very music oriented and kind of those sort of traditional Baptist hymns. 
some actually kind of amazing music and choirs and things like that. So I had had some exposure to that all through my growing up and had a natural ability as a singer. So I got into theater. That led me into music. And in fact, around that time in high school, I became one of the the guys that could really sing. And I had a acquaintance who said, hey, man, I have a, a rock band. Would you want to be the singer in my rock band? And I was like, <laughs> sure, this sounds cool. So I tried out for the rock band. And then that my buddy Nick, he ultimately became my best friend. And we then started kind of a journey while I was still basically a theater kid. But we started working, recording, and uh, doing music. And Nick actually got one of the first Roland Digital Porta Studios. This is back in the mid-90s. So we started experimenting with digital music recording and mixing. And so essentially, by the time I got out of high school, I was really interested in theater and the arts in general. And I was writing songs and recording music. And so those two things were kind of my two biggest interests. And that's kind of what got me started, ultimately led me to study theater in undergrad. And then at some point in undergrad, who, and I was mostly pursuing acting and some music production. At Southern Illinois University, there's a great jazz guitarist, Rick Hayden, and he had a really cool music recording, one of the early Pro Tools TDM systems going. And they, mm. they had actually built out a pretty amazing recording facility there with an orchestral recording space and a jazz recording space. So I started to get some exposure to the technology on the computer side. And then at some point, I had a professor who said, you know, I know you have this whole thing you do with music and songwriting. He's like, why don't you try to bring that into your work in theater in some way? And that led me to start to do some kind of essentially what was sound design for some experimental theater work. And then at the uh, end of my undergrad career, Nick, my buddy and I, who were in the band together, we actually scored a theatrical play, this play called Marisol by Jose Rivera, this magic realism play. So we we wrote a whole score for that. And then I did a whole sound design for that project as well. And that kind of set me off in this direction of like combining those two interests that I had. And I actually just soon after that got offered many jobs to do sound design for theater, moved to St. Louis and spent the next five years doing sound design for theater. Let's break that down a little bit. Tell me what is involved in sound design for theater? Because, you know, yeah. I come from a music recording background and many of the listeners actually do as well. So what does that mean for theater? So great question. And it's interesting that from what I was doing, that would have been in the early 2000s to what I've now done some larger scale theater work and more sophisticated technical theater work since then, including at Cal Arts where I did my graduate degree. I was actually in a sound design program that's housed within the theater program there. So I actually did a lot of graduate level theater and some professional theater after. But at the time, what that really was, was we had like a, a Newmark DJ CD player. And so I would go <laughs> and pull, I had some sound effects libraries that I had acquired and I had a huge music collection. And so I would choose underscore music or incidental music. And then I would choose different sound effects that maybe we would put in the background. So at least to set the scene and create a feel, essentially a kind of crude version of what you would do for a movie. And then during the show that it would be called along with the lighting cues and we would have a cue sheet and I would know the numbers on the CDs and we would play and crossfade off of these two CDs. That's how, that's how we did it. Wow. Very crude at the time. Yeah, and this is early 2000s and, 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 you know, Broadway and stuff. There were a few systems that existed at that point that were computer-based, but 
this was like the early days of Pro Tools even and stuff. So things were just kind of getting up and, and running. And so now if we look at what I worked on in graduate school and some of my peers work for Cirque du Soleil and some of them work for Imagineering. And now there's incredible computer-based software that has these sophisticated timelines you can build with triggers and all kinds of cool stacked queuing systems that you can you can set up to do really sophisticated stuff integrated with video and I've had an opportunity to do some of that as well later on so so now it's much more sophisticated but at the time that's essentially right. what I was doing but it got me interested in it and you know I was doing a lot variety of different things I was doing new work at a black box theater but I was also working at the St. Louis Black Rep which is one of the biggest African American repertory theater companies in the US and doing Shakespeare plays doing August Wilson plays so you know a variety of different things and in fact I also did some musical work and musical mixing in that time period as well. So I was actually right. able to do some some work on the music side in theater as well. So what you do now, all of this essentially started to stem from this experience, right? From yeah. doing sound design for theater. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was always a movie lover. And over time, I think you have a sense as a theater artist that like in sound is like there are, at least at that time, it felt limited because the technology was so limited and the budget was so limited. And, you know, I always had a sense that like, oh, you know, in movies, there's clearly other opportunities. And I think also in a more rudimentary way, it's like in theater, you're always essentially using real time to kind of build a timeline, essentially, right? You're The play's going on and you're triggering things at different moments. And there's a point at which as a sound designer, you're like, wow, I wish this was just locked down so I could, <laughs> I could actually like do more elaborate, interesting things. So I think there was also a sense of that for me at some point that I realized like, oh, to do the more interesting kinds of sound design work that I'd like to do, I think working in a time-based medium might be really interesting. So that was definitely it. But, you know, the other thing that brought me, I was very interested in technology as well. And so I actually had a choice. I worked for five years in St. Louis and owned a home. And at some point I decided, you know, I, I want to go to a coast. I want to pursue either large-scale theater or movie making or a deeper kind of technology pursuit. And I actually applied to NYU in their program, which is called ITP, Interactive Telecommunications Program, which is essentially a new media program. And then I also applied to CalArts. And CalArts, the reason I applied to CalArts is when I knew it had this incredible film program there and the Pixar people came from there and so many great directors. But I had actually, when I was working in professional theater, I had seen an article in entertainment design about a theater project they did there, which was this King Lear where they put the audience in a camera obscura and move them around on air casters. They had a live car crash. And I was like, this place seems really incredible just on a creative mm. level. So, so that really piqued my interest too. I mean, I, I knew that I was interested in working in the movie business, but I was also really just interested in creativity and developing myself as a designer and an artist more as well. So ultimately, I made the decision that I wanted to go to CalArts in part because it was a three-year program, in part because I knew that I would have access to a, a film program. And also just because I felt like there was some deep creative roots there that really appealed to me as a person who had kind of worked in theater and experimental theater some, like I was really interested in collaborative work and devised work. And so it just really made sense because it had everything that I wanted to do there available to me. 
So that's ultimately what led me there. I want to back up to St. Louis for a bit. How long did you live in St. Louis? About five years. I mean, I grew up in the St. Louis area, so but in rural Illinois, about an hour north. But I, yeah, I lived in St. Louis and worked in theater for yeah around five years. Survival-wise, does the world of theater and sound design, well, at least back then, were you making a living? Yeah, I was. I mean, the key is that St. Louis was is a very cheap city to live in. I lived in this like beautiful lofted up old like converted warehouse loft apartment. It was like an old hardware store storefront that was like huge, like 2000 square feet or 1500 square feet. And it was like 800 bucks a month or something, you know? Wow. So it was just an incredible, it was a neighborhood that was a little, you, you didn't want to leave your CD case in your car. You know, it was that kind of a neighborhood, but, right. but it, it was a very inexpensive place to live. So it, I made it work. I wasn't like bankrolling a lot of money at first. So in part, I worked at the at the St. Louis Black Rep as both uh, assistant technical director. So I was building sets and doing other work along with being the, the company sound designer. Mm -hmm. So I was basically making design money in the evenings working as a designer. And then I was making money as a technical director during the day. So that's what made that work. A lot of long days, but it made it work. And then I was also becoming kind of a go-to sound designer for other companies. So with that supplement, mental income, it worked. And then ultimately, I ended up getting a gig at a school district there as basically kind of a media consultant. And mm -hmm. I would come in and like build sound systems and set up theaters for them and spec equipment, all kind, anything. It was a school district with 28 schools. And so I was able to like, they, they had enough need just for someone to kind of help them buy equipment and set things up and help with events and things like that. So that was a really nice gig. It paid really well. And then I mm -hmm. continued to actually just work basically almost every night as a theater designer. So that's what let me buy a house there. And, you know, but I will tell you, the house I bought was like around $100,000. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. They practically yeah. gave it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so was the theater stuff that you were involved with there, was that a union-based gig? It was not. That's regional. So in that region, more or less what was going on is that the unions, they took care of the stadiums. They oh, took care okay. of the big theaters. They took care of the big roadhouses, all those kind of like money makers. They essentially left the smaller companies alone because there wasn't money there. I do know at the Black Rep, we had to, for load-ins and load-outs, we'd have to have two union stagehands and mostly they would just sit there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was one of those things. What was driving you to want to go to NYU or CalArts? Looking back now, part of it was, I think, I mean, not to get too political, but that was around the time of the second Bush election. And I had a little bit of a feeling of, I don't want to give my tax dollars to the state anymore. I want to go somewhere that aligned with my politics mm -hmm. was a little bit of what I was thinking about. But ultimately, I think I just wanted something new. I, I kind of had a sense that in five years I'd done what I could do in St. Louis the only kind of step up from there was like, oh, getting the full-time gig at the big rep theater there, or just kind of be more involved in education or get a university gig, something like that. And I, I personally knew that I creatively, I needed more. And I at least wanted to try to work on bigger projects and to go to a place where there was just more activity because St. Louis, it's, it's limited. There's a great indie rock scene there, which I enjoy. You can make your own opportunity anywhere, but there's not a lot of movie making, for instance, there. It'd be a tough to run a studio to mix movies in St. Louis, things like that. So you came out to California. 
Mm-hmm. Tell me about your early days there. Was was it tough? I always ask people this when they come from other states and they come to at least Los Angeles for the first time. Was it eye-opening or was it exactly what you imagined it to be? You know, I had a, when I interviewed for CalArts, and this was actually a big deciding factor for me, I interviewed, my ultimate my mentor is a, is a, was a guy, John Gottlieb, who's a big theater sound designer here in LA and works at the Center Theater Group for years and years. But it just turned out I interviewed in Chicago and the guy who interviewed me was this lighting designer Lap, and he had been in New York for a decade before he came out to LA to teach at CalArts and or more. I, I don't know exactly, but I think more than 10 years and it worked on Broadway, et cetera. And I told him, well, you know, I did apply to NYU and I'm interested in going that direction. And he said, well, he's like, you're someone who grew up in the Midwest. You're used to the way that you can make work and the way that things are more accessible. And he said, you know, New York's cool, but he said it's really locked down because it's just it's a town that there are there isn't a lot of slack, you know. And so to make work can be very difficult. He said, whereas in, in L.A., L.A. is a kind of wild west. There's lots of space. There's lots of warehouses. You can kind of do whatever you want to do and make whatever you want to make. It's less restrictive. Yeah. And that immediately activated in something in me. And honestly, it, it activated something that goes all the way back to me growing up on the farm. The thing about farming is you kind of have to be a jack of all trades. You kind of have to know so many different things. And so much of it is about taking all the tools and equipment and machinery, but really finding your own way to do things and solving problems. And, you know, it's a very open environment to however you want to interpret making and building and doing what you want to do. And I think there was something inherent in me and in my kind of spirit creatively that I was like, yes, that feels right to me, as opposed to going to Manhattan and kind of like playing by the rules of Manhattan, you know, yeah. it was ultimately how I interpreted that. And so that that's really what led me to California. And I would say that, yeah, for the most part, it has been exactly that. I came in really hitting the ground running. I'd worked for five years as a creative professional. So a lot of my peers in grad school, they were coming right out of undergrad it's all very conceptual, but for me, I had already worked and kind of dealt with budgets and dealt with people and dealt with what it means to be collaborative creatively. So I think I had a real sense of one, what I wanted to do as a creative person, but also just what it means to get a foothold and to make something. So CalArts was a great environment for me in that way, because Walt Disney started that place and the mandate was at that time, there were no schools that combined music, visual arts, and performing arts. It, it just didn't exist. They were all separate conservatories. And that was the genius of, of Walt Disney. He's like, these things should be together. These things can cross-pollinate. The artists can help each other find new interesting ways to be creative. And that's exactly what it was. And I very much came in invoking that and saying like, that's what I'm here to do. I'm interested in technology. I'm interested in theater. I'm interested in film. I'm interested in music. Hmm. I want to do all these things and kind of grab a hold of every opportunity here. And so that was just exactly because that's what I wanted it to be. And so, so that was real. And then also a little further along now I've, been able here in LA to build studios and grow. And then the into the, the current facility we're in is was a bare warehouse that I built out. And I think that LA, it's expensive and and you know it's 
it's it's changing certainly and it's there's a lot more people flooding in real estate's becoming more expensive like it is in every city yeah. you know there's definitely some difficulties versus being in a smaller city but it is still a place where you can kind of make your own way so in that way i i think it has been exactly what i hoped it would be how long of a program was cal arts for you three years okay when you left that program and ventured out into the world Assuming that you didn't, you weren't doing some venturing already during the program. Yeah. What was the, one of the first things that you did? Because you had a studio before the current studio location in Burbank. Mm -hmm. There was a previous incarnation, was there not? Yeah. There have been three studios. The first one was I, I built in a garage behind my house in North Hollywood. And it was just a little fully an ADR recording space and a little tiny mix stage. The second iteration was that I moved into a, a facility over in Universal City that had a dedicated kind of small to medium-sized mix stage, but was pre-built and another company was in there and they were essentially had, they weren't using the space to its capacity. And so I came in initially taking over 25% of the time and then I moved to 50% of the time and then eventually I took over the space 100%. So that was the second incarnation. And then this is the third, which is built from the ground up out of a bare space. But when I first got out of CalArts, I had met a lot of filmmakers. I was really interested in kind of collaboration. I got a little bit of a feel for kind of how the film industry works. And ultimately, I think what I realized, though now I understand it more, is that the sound part of the film industry was kind of in a transitional phase. It was kind of still moving out of the analog, big teams, big studios. It hadn't really embraced the technology in the way that we're seeing it now, which ultimately means like a handful of sound designers can do a whole big feature film project. And so, you know, what I kind of ran into quickly is that people were like, well, you need to get in at the ground floor at one of the big studios and work your way up. And, you know, it's not about sound design. You got to choose a track. It needs to be sound editor or sound mixer. And you can either be an assistant editor or you can be a mix tech and that's your path. And then you'll eventually get to work on stuff. You were talking about these different tracks. And, yeah. and the thing that I've always been like, it's intriguing. It's also a little head scratching for me that in the world of film, there are those tracks and that everybody's mm -hmm. kind of got this role. Yeah. So people telling you to go work at places and work your way up and find your track. But yeah, were you kind of rebelling against that? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, part of that was I was a little older and had worked and ultimately like through being at Cal Arts, I had really developed a sense of ultimately what led me to name my company. This is sound design that I had this sense that the technology is changing, that it's time to rethink the working on sound and movies and, and not think of it as engineering, but think of it as design. And part of that was that I was in a program at CalArts in the theater program that explicitly trains designers. And so I did a full year of just design education where I worked with Chris Barreca, who's a great scenic designer for Broadway stuff. And we just really dug deeply into what it means to be creative and to come up with ideas and execute them and also to think collaboratively. So it really set me up in a way to think about my work in a different kind of way and to really think of it as design. And what really what I think I encountered is the vestiges of what was kind of required in the analog era in film sound, which is that you needed an army of people to do it. 
it was an industrial process just purely based on how physical it was that it was like cutting with razor blades and loading dubbers and all these very physical analog things that had to happen that it wasn't something that you could kind of put into a computer and then live in a computer from start to finish, which it is now. And I think I kind of had this sense of having learned Pro Tools and started in this digital way that I was like, oh, this division doesn't really make sense to me. And I had by that time mixed, you know, I'd spent a couple years mixing. I'd spent time working in a stage and designing and editing. Like I had a real sense of the continuity from start to finish. And that ultimately I felt like that's my process. All of that is what I'm trying to do. And I can't separate those things out. So it just felt so foreign to me that I immediately was like, yeah, that I don't think that's going to work for my vision of what I think ultimately leads to interesting work in sound in a movie, which maybe was a little yeah, rebellious and a little bit bold. And, mm -hmm. you know, but ultimately I sort of had the confidence as a person who's a little further along and also just by my experiences I had had in graduate school, I really felt like, oh, I can see there's going to be another way. There's going to be another path. And actually I felt like no one really talked about that for the next 10 years that I, I never heard anyone really speak to that. You know, you would see some, some specific sound artists that really thought of themselves as sound designers. We think of Ben Burt, we think of Gary Rydstrom, we think of Walter yeah. Murch. These are the people, interestingly, all from the San Francisco crowd, right? Yeah, all yeah. from the people who very vocally with American Zoetrope left LA and said like, we don't want to work with this way. We're going to go to San Francisco and rethink this. And, you know, along with watching those movies like The Conversation and obviously Star Wars, and, <laughs> you know, where they changed sound, they were the vanguard of people who said, we're going to think about this differently. And you get your apocalypse nows and you get your these, you know, seminal pieces of, of sound for cinema. And so also I saw that. And so I thought, well, at least there's a little bit of precedent. But everything here in LA, I just got a sense of like, people said, no, that's not how it is really. You just got to do, do it this way. And there's a lot more to that. Honestly, the truth is, is in LA still, a lot of the business of sound is renting stages and rooms. And that's done by big studios. And honestly, most of the big movie studios still have a money-making operation running mixed stages. And so that's if if you have a hammer, you know, everything's a nail. Like I think there's nail, an right? element yeah. of that in all in it too. And I think frankly, a lot of the old guard just didn't understand where this technology was going. And actually, I just recently worked on a big budget movie both as sound designer, supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer, but we mixed it at one of the big stages here and we actually mis mixed it at the Ross stage, which is John Ross, who's a veteran sound mixer and worked with David Lynch and David O. Russell. When John started out in a small setup many, many years ago, and ultimately he was kind of pulled into the big, there was a big conglomerate that formed, maybe now it's coming on 20 years ago, where a lot of the big sound studios were kind of gobbled up by a, one big private equity firm. And then ultimately it kind of destabilized everything. It's a, That's a whole nother conversation. But, yeah. but John was kind of the guy back then who he was the guy that embraced euphonics and digital consoles very early. And at mm. that time, like he says, everybody else said, oh no, we're going to be, we're always going to be in Neve consoles. We're always going to be analog. You know, this guy, he's, he's totally out 
to lunch. You know, John was saying like, no, we need to get our sound on the servers. We need to be embracing digital and Maddie and these, these things because it's going to make it better and more efficient. And he had a lot of resistance. And ultimately, obviously, John's vision for what we were going to do won out is I have the euphonics, right. uh, <laughs> you know, ultimately the S6 console with the euphonics faders, et cetera, et cetera. So that was going on. But I think ultimately, no one would have imagined when I started out 15 years ago that I would be working on feature films in my garage and mixing feature films. And, you know, that was about iterations of Pro Tools. It was about the newer Mac Pro that had more horsepower. It was about all these things that were moving forward and having come out of CalArts where I had a great technical background and working with some people who really understood the technology, I just sort of immediately saw like, oh, I can work on feature level work. And it was just kind of right in that moment that it was really becoming accessible. It was about, you know, not having to have 12 TDM cards to run a project or multiple computers to run a feature. It was all that stuff was just starting to happen. And there were certainly growing pains, but the truth is, is that suddenly a guy in a studio could run a decent sized indie feature mix in a machine. And that that was ultimately what made a big difference. But, you know, it took time for me because obviously, I, you know, I had met people at CalArts. I had I had made some connections. I quickly had a few things that went to Sundance, started that, you know, there was that ball was starting to roll of getting connected with the indie filmmaker crowd. And these were low budget movies, but they did have budgets. Yeah. And so there was an opportunity there because it was kind of parallel with the emergence of HD video. So again, it was like on the sound side, you could do a lot more with, with a lot less money using the current technology. And the same thing was happening where filmmakers were like, oh, I can get an a, a HDV camera and I can go shoot a feature film that can go to Sundance and sell. And the cost is dramatically lower. So those were the visual and sound part were running in parallel as well. And obviously the, the picture editorial too, and the emergence of Final Cut Pro, all these things were happening simultaneously. And I was basically just riding a wave with those other elements, but I couldn't sustain myself initially. And so actually I was lucky. I was able to get a gig working for the public radio show Marketplace. Yeah. Kai Rizdahl, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I got a gig down there. They're in downtown LA at the Frank Sant Studios. And I, uh, yeah, I got a gig, a freelance gig where I could come in a few days a week and just basically assemble stories. And that's a live to tape show that goes up every day at two. So not only was it a nice little extra bit of income that helped me while I was getting started with my my studio, but Working in broadcast was incredibly helpful because, honestly, it got the preciousness out of a little bit of what, like, I had learned kind of working at CalArts and being very thoughtful about the creative side. Having to do a live-to-tape show where it's like it goes up at 2 p.m., and you got to make the deadline. And so you got to make big choices and you got to learn to move quick. You got to learn to edit quick and mix quick. That was really important because it created this other efficiency experience that I got to have where the quality of Marketplace is very high, but it's still, sometimes you have to put together a three minute story in six minutes and that's it's tricky. Yeah. And so that was actually a, a really great opportunity that not only got allowed me to get my studio off the ground and, and essentially from there, I was able to eventually just move into full-time sound for movies. But I also got to have this great broadcast production experience. So very helpful. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. On the outside looking in, to me, it seems very challenging. It's one thing to go to CalArts and get these inspirations and these ideas and run with them. And I could see like the progression of growing out of the garage to a facility and putting together a facility in spite of the fact that a lot of this stuff has come down in price, it's still a costly thing. And I've taken a look at the website and I've seen the building and I just went, wow, okay, that's, that's impressive. A lot of different rooms. So without like trying to get into your personal finances. No, no, we can get into it because it's all, I bootstrapped every bit of it. Yeah. Like how, how did you put this together? So it's a progression. Okay. You know, I'm still using machines that I bought 15 years ago as one. So it was like, I had a sense of, on one level, at first I was like, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to build this little studio. I'm going to do indie movies. And then what starts to happen is your clients start to get bigger stuff. And you start to see like, oh, if I want to stay with them and keep working with them, I'm going to have to grow. So there was a sort of organic pressure, I would say. And it wasn't immediate. It was like, oh, okay, I can see, oh, I lost this movie because I didn't have enough people on the crew or they can't really come to my house and work on it. So so that was the first iteration. And I got very lucky, honestly. I had a freelancer who worked for me who said, hey, there's this guy that's got this facility over in Universal. I, I got called in to work on something with him. It seems like he doesn't have a lot of business right now. And it seems like the stage is sitting. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I was like, why don't you intro us? And I met the guy and I said, hey, let me come in and mix a few things in here and got to know him and kind of got a feel for the situation. And so ultimately, like that was a very lucky thing that I found an opportunity where somebody was willing to take what was essentially a, a pretty small amount of money monthly, way below 
potentially what market value would have been mm -hmm. to be able to have somebody where he knew I could cover a chunk of his lease every month. So that was just a very lucky thing. And it was a stage that was already had been built out. And he actually hadn't even built that stage. It had been another guy that was a mastering engineer and he had built the room. So, you know, it was like, and he kind of got in there out of nowhere and didn't have to outlay all that money to do all the isolation work and all that stuff. So it was like, he had gotten a good deal coming into this place. Then I came in, I got a good deal. And my part of my trade at that time was, and this is how I actually got in there. I said, this is right around when the S6 console was coming out. And I right. said, I, I've been in the market to buy a console. I know that I need a console. The, the, the level of work I'm doing, I need a real console. I can't do it on an artist mix. I know this new console's coming out from Avid. I'm going to buy one of the first S6s. And I said, if, if I buy the S6, I'll give you this much a month and I'll set this S6 in this stage. And he had an old, you know, an old icon console. And so he was like, oh, I think this will help me get some more business too. So that was a little bit of the trade-off. And the way I did that is I took out a loan. It was an $85,000 console. And I took out a loan, a normal equipment lease. It's pretty standard way of operating here in LA. It's basically 100% tax deductible. And then at the end of the lease, it turns over into ownership. It's a specific financial mechanism for people who buy equipment. And they have the collateral because they can always take the console back and sell right. it. So that was the way I did it. And so I was able, I had enough money to put down the down payment on that to get that note. And I spread it out over many years. It was a, it was a low enough payment that I could manage it. And that, that was ultimately what got me in the door at that place. And then from there, I was immediately able to start courting a lot of filmmakers that were still making low budget movies, but it was, they had budgets enough that I could easily put together my costs and make some money. Not that there weren't lean times. I mean, it, it was tricky. I'm, I'm married. So I had another person in my life that also worked. And so there were months where they were covering more of our bills. A partnership like that's really helpful because there were definitely months I probably wouldn't have made rent if I hadn't have been able to have that help. What's a typical indie film budget for what one does as far as the sound aspect of it? You know, so I can talk about back then. I mean, it, 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 it is an incredibly wide range. Back then, the lowest budget stuff I was seeing was like $10,000 for a walk and talk indie movie or $15,000, you know, down in that range. But again, because my monthly costs weren't that high, that I could take some of those projects that ultimately bigger studios wouldn't even think about taking. Oh, interesting. So I was undercutting the market a little bit, ultimately. You know, I was building a resume. That's the cool thing about Sundance and Indies is that the last 10 years, I've had a feature film at South by Southwest every year. So you start to then... You do tiny, tiny movies, and then they get into South by Southwest. And not only does that create buzz with them, they're filmmakers, because they're like, oh, I, that's where I want to be. But also, I would go to Sundance. I would go to South by Southwest. I would meet filmmakers. I would get there and interact with people. And everything ultimately was a version of a word-of-mouth thing. And then as the word got out, we were able to start to raise the budgets up more, you know, as bigger projects were able to come in. And the other big thing for me is just learning how to budget. It's really difficult. That's one of the earliest things to figure out for any studio is like, where do we sit in the whole market of people doing this? Where can we place our price point 
that's high enough that we can make some money and keep the doors open, but low enough that we can keep a steady flow of work going. And then ultimately understanding a way to start to build quotes and to show and and to and to even start to push the rates up. And there's a lot of techniques for doing that. There's one of the things I started doing early on is saying, okay, here's three budget options. One, two, three, really detailed. Here's all of what we can do. What do you think you want to do? How important is the Foley versus the mix for you? And so what you also start to do is just create a link for the filmmakers between time and cost and the the amount of creativity that's going to be able to go into it. As you start to, again, work with people over multiple iterations, you start to get comp projects where you can say like, well, this movie versus this movie, here's this movie, which is a very simple movie in the budget we did. And here's this movie that required more. And that also helps because they can be like, well, actually, I think this has a design element that I really need that extra time. And oftentimes they'll go and find that money. There's a little bit of psychology there. There's also just starting to understand your own way to create efficiencies. And honestly, I think there's probably sound people and people in the film business be like, those are impossible budgets. Those are impossible numbers. A big part of it is learning to be incredibly efficient, to be able to really, as one person, mix a feature film in a week. And that's a skill that ultimately you build up. It's like lifting weights, like doing those low budget projects creates a lot of efficiency in your process, creates a lot of just ability to move very quickly, have really learning your equipment, really building your templates and your workflow in a way that you can successfully create a soundtrack for a movie given the amount of money available to do it. And honestly, that's still what we're doing. We're working now on movies that have seven close to eight figure budgets and we're still in a way we're coming in under under the budget of a lot of the other bigger studios and it's not that we're just getting killed on price it's that we're actually a lot faster and so i don't need the amount of mix time that some of the other vendors that are trying and other studios that are trying to get a movie need i just don't need it i can i can move quicker and come up with a result that's comparable so you know all those things come into play why do you think that you're able to be more nimble than some of the other places? There's there's a couple things going on. One is my overhead, even in building this facility, and I'll tell you, like in terms of the financing of this facility, before this, with the old facility, we started to prepare to build this space years ago. And the way we prepared for that was buying BSS units, buying software, buying updates to the S6. I was building up my setup so that ultimately when I was in that old studio, I had nearly all the infrastructure already, at least for all my room tuning, all my processing, all my machines. I had all that ready to go. I was building that up over time. So then we didn't have $100,000 of that to buy at the same time as building this facility. Right. So that was a big thing. By that time, I knew we're going to keep building, right? And we're going to keep growing and we're going to have to prepare for the next studio. And frankly, we're going to have to build one more studio after this one, I think, probably. We're going to outgrow this space eventually too. So thinking about all that was important. And that meant that I'm investing all the time in the infrastructure to be able to spread that out so that I don't end up with a gigantic loan that I then then have to cover a huge amount of monthly payment to keep the doors open. So that was something I anticipated and was very successful, you know, that if you went into my machine room, three quarters of everything we have in there, I already owned before I started building this space. 
so so that that's a big element. And then because I had a certain amount of revenue, I was smart. I used QuickBooks. I kept track of all my income. I had a tax accountant. We really kept track and I really understood where the revenues were coming in and how they were going out and understood how to balance all that and to show that so that when I, when we went to build this place, I was able to go and get a great SBA loan at a very low interest rate. And so that's the other way, way that I was able to build this space. I got SBA money, but I also spent less than 20% of some of my competitors to build their facilities for essentially the same space. And the way I did that is partially my dad's a contractor. I didn't have an architect. I drew the plans for the space. I designed the HVAC system. I basically was the contractor and subbed out a lot of elements. And then I personally built all the acoustic treatments. All of these things are hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost that I was able to do in sweat equity. And that's how we kept the price point low. So I don't have a massive overhead even now with this space, even though I don't have an investor, I don't have family money, I don't have any of that. I just was able to leverage the revenue that I had with the SBA, and I was able to save in all these different areas. And even some of it is just purely building my, you know, we have a couple high-end Mac Pros that are our main machines for these stages, but also repurposing a bunch of older Mac Pros and building them out to be our dubbers and building them out to be our video satellites. Like every little thing is a money saving. And that's huge. You know, you've said something there that I want to I want to zero in on, and that is, before you got that SBA loan, you were building up a track record to present to the SBA because Correct. you can't just go to the SBA and say, "Give me some money." You have to have a track record. You have to show that revenue. Oh, that's brilliant! You were so disciplined about that. Yeah, yeah. And listen, it doesn't mean that there weren't sketchy moments, <laughs> you know, <laughs> certainly in the last facility, when I had to move from being half time to full time and take on that full lease, it was a tough year because we had to scale our work up to be able to do that. You know, it isn't always a straight trajectory up. Mm -hmm. It's very tricky. I had to take out some, I had to take out some sketchy loans at one point, you know, which are sketchy and like they went out of business now, but there's this company cabbage. That's like a small business loan. It's a very high interest rate. Like I had to do that a few times to keep the doors open. I had to pay those loans off. I had to pay that interest off. Like it was, you know, there was a lot of hustling and moving, but all the while knowing kind of what the the end goal was, you know? So it's, it's fits and starts. I don't want to present it to your audience of like, oh yeah, you just, it was definitely took some maneuvering and some hustling to sort it out. But yes, I was, I was always thinking about the numbers and I was always projecting ahead. And also, yeah, just, I knew I could look and anybody who's running even a small business, get QuickBooks online, Attach that to your account and start tracking everything. And you can do some reports and you can look and you can see like, oh, I can see that our revenue's going up or I can see we're flat now and I need, I need to focus on some business development. It will help you understand the inputs and outputs. And that's, I mean, it's just so important. And then the great thing is if you have all that information, you can then a few years later, go back to the SBA and say, hey, here's my report. Look at this trend line going up. I'm a safe bet which is, is a huge, it's, it's essential. 
you know, I have advocated for QuickBooks self-employed online to my audience before. I'll put a link yeah. in the show notes, audience, just as, as a reminder. Yeah, yeah. Also, I'll say, just let me add to that too, it was tricky getting this financed even with the SBA. And here's what's interesting about that. I wasn't asking for enough money. Oh. And that's a really, it was, it was so surprising to me because ultimately I needed less than a million dollars quite a bit less actually to do this. And when I went to my bank, which was Chase and went to some other people who do business loans, small business loans, anything SBA, basically every time they told me, yeah, if it's not like three quarters to a million dollars, it's really not worth it to us because we have to do the same amount of work to get you the loan and our take is much smaller. And so ultimately what I found is that most of the kind of established players and certainly the big banks is like, they want you to ask for a million dollars. I didn't have the revenue to get a million dollar loan. And it took me many months of talking to different lenders. And, and ultimately what happened was the realtor that handled the lease of this building, we had done that getting the building. I had the building and he said, and I said, well, I'm having trouble getting this loan that I need, even though everything is above board and the documentation is good. He said, I know a guy and he specifically does small business stuff. And ultimately what he ended up being was, his name's Keith. He works for a small business, regional small business development group that is essentially a offshoot of the SBA. And their focus is actually very small businesses and their focus is facilitating loans to small businesses like nail salons and bodegas, very, very small businesses that need like, oh, I need $80,000 to buy the equipment to start my, my nail salon. And so they work with a bunch of small regional banks. And so they basically spread the loans out a group, amongst a group of small regional banks. And that allows them to feel safe to loan to these small businesses. You still have to have the, the documentation of revenue. You have to have all that. But they uniquely understood how to make a loan happen for me. Then they connected me with a company called CDC. And CDC is, a, is basically this conglomerate of small banks. So Keith made that happen for me. And that was just, it can be very tricky because if you don't know these little tricks and you don't know like, oh, there is a there is a path for an actual business that's asking for less than half a million dollars, but you got to find the right people who know how to facilitate that loan. And mm -hmm. it's not common. So that's just a little tip. And I'll I'll give you the info so you can put it in show notes about the the group that I worked with here in LA. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on their acronym right now. That's okay. That's That'd be great. Yeah, they actually were the key and they made it happen for me. And in fact, Keith came back around during the pandemic and we could talk about the pandemic because we were building this during the pandemic and my revenue dropped less than half. And Keith actually helped get me an extra amount of SBA money that was related to the pandemic that kind of pushed us through to the end and actually really saved us. And, and I think we would have been okay, but it really let us ramp in to post-pandemic because we actually were coming into some really big projects and I really needed the, some extra money to get this stage. It's as a theatrical Atmos stage to buy these speakers, to buy some other equipment we needed, and also just to to actually do some hiring that I needed to do pre-ramp up so I could get people trained and ready to go. So those folks and Keith were such a huge part of making this happen. So that's definitely something to be aware of. 
So I want to highlight to the audience, this is really interesting to me. So you've got this facility that works on films, TVs, podcasts, commercials, virtual reality, trailers. And, you know, I'm not seeing a big crew here. Is Do you have a big crew? I have a small crew compared to like others. But, you know, honestly, the film industry is kind of a freelance and project to project based industry anyway, and has been for for many years, really since that big conglomerate debacle that happened many years ago with when all the hedge fund money came in and Sound One went out of business in New York and Sound Deluxe here, all these companies consolidated. Ultimately, what happened out of that is that a lot of the in-house stuff went away and everybody kind of became a freelancer. And so you just mm. get hired on for a project for better or worse. So ultimately what I have is some a handful of full-time people and most of my crew, they come on project to project and they actually hire on for the actual film. And then that that's all union-based and there's union and non-union stuff. And you know, when we do a union project, we get hired onto that actual company that's making the movie because I'm not a I'm not a union facility. So I actually get hired onto those projects for those kinds of, of, of things. So even I'm a freelancer in many of the projects we're doing. I mean, that's just the way that it's structured in the industry. But I do have a handful of full-time people that keep things going day to day. So that's, that's, that's it. It's, it. But that's not unusual even for the larger studios. There's way fewer in-house than there used to be. I want to just uh, applaud you for your, your hustle, really. I mean, very smart of you, too, to like, realize, okay, I need to get some extra work. I'll go work for Marketplace and that NPR thing and just doing whatever it takes, but always kind of keeping your eyes forward towards the ultimate goal and getting there. At least that's what it appears like from the outside that you've done. Like you had some some vision here and yeah, you've had some stumbles here and there, I'm sure, but ultimately you're, you're getting there. Actually, you've got quite a nice place there. So I'm, I'm sure there's a sense of accomplishment that you feel now. Yeah, definitely. You were asking me about the work, actually, and why we can be more efficient earlier. And I, I wanted to take you through this kind of the, the money side, because I think that's right. a really critical Your nimbleness. Piece. But the other thing is, is that I think the, the guiding vision is actually that coming out of CalArts, I had a sense of wow, the technology is going to change the way this works. And I immediately saw the idea like this is engineering, that kind of mentality. It's ultimately kind of a factory mentality. I just knew in my heart, having worked with these filmmakers and leveraging the technology as a, a sole sound designer, I knew what was going to be possible. And I knew that it wasn't just that we were going to be able to match what the big facilities were, were going to be able to do, but we were going to be able to do something that's actually better and more creative and and just more personal, which is really what this whole last 20 years of indie filmmaking and the technology kind of democratizing movie making has done is that it's brought us closer as individual creative people to the process. And I just had the sense that like, if we can leverage this technology, we're going to be able to make some of the greatest sound that's ever been made. So that was really the driving thing. And then what I then started to understand is like, oh, right, but the rooms are this important part of it. And actually, there's a lot in sound for movies. There's a lot of the money is trapped in renting the room. And so if you don't have a room, 
that you can do the work in, it's going to limit you because then you're going to be beholden to the people who own the rooms. You're going to be beholden to the accountants that decide this project versus that project. Mm. And to me, I was like, oh, even if I know I can make something great, if I have to answer to the person who owns the room every time to be able to make those creative decisions, I know it's just one, I'm going to be pissed and, and frustrated, but also I just know I'm not going to be able to realize this thing that I see is a possibility. And so that it's this kind of tandem thing where it's like the money's in the banana stand, right? Like the the money's in the rooms. <laughs> but to me, it's not, frankly, for a lot of the other people who own these companies, they're just renting rooms to make a lot of money and live in a nice house and drive a great Tesla and all this stuff. For me, for what I think for better, but sometimes for worse, I'm doing this so that I can make great creative work. And that's you know, it's been a harrowing journey in some instances, but ultimately that was th that was the thing that drove me all the way through was that I knew that if we got to a certain point that not only are we going to be able to do incredible work, and I'm really excited about some of the stuff that's going to be coming out in this next year because having a theatrical Atmos mixed stage and being able to leverage that in a way that I think I haven't heard anybody do in thinking about the work in a very different way that's happening. And that's what I'm so excited about. And it's great because it's also, I can tell now the wheels turning on its own. Now the, the momentum is there. Whereas like I, up until really, we kind of finished this place off and those post COVID projects started to flow in and the word started to get out. I was keeping the wheel rolling all the time. You know, right, like right. I was the sole person and it's a lonely place to be sometimes. Even my, my spouse didn't, I think a hundred percent understand when all this energy and time and money is happening. I'm like, trust me, once this is done, it's gonna, it's gonna work. And I knew it in my heart, you know, without COVID, it would have been a lot easier with COVID and losing all that revenue was tough. But now I see that self-sustaining and what that ultimately means is we can do big movies. We can do bids against the big studios in town and get those movies in part because I can say, this is my place and I know that there will be zero compromise creatively in what we're trying to do. And these filmmakers who maybe have had experiences at some of these big studios in the past where it was most certainly the accountants were compromising what the ultimate result was, they are the ones now saying like, oh, yes, this is what I've been missing. This is what I've been after. And so that's a really exciting thing where we're going to be able to work on great big movies and do it the way that we want to do it creatively. But the other thing is that is also opening me up now where I can take a movie like the movie we just had that was a winner at Cannes, Joyland, where this is a tiny movie that was shot by a first time feature director and a producer who were just out of Colombia who wanted to make this verite, beautiful story about a family in Pakistan. It's very timely. It's very relevant to kind of the issues of the time. It's also, they had a very small budget. And I was able to, not only because I have the facility, but I also know that we can take that money and we can actually make something really beautiful and brilliant and creative and also not lose money because we're quick and not just me, my team, we're efficient. We know how to take a tiny thing and make it really beautiful and powerful. 
And so now that movie went to Khan and it won. It went to rave reviews at Toronto. And now it's Pakistan's submission for the Academy Awards this upcoming year. And that, to me, that also feels like an accomplishment, that I can take this thing that honestly no other facility in town would have touched that movie. They just didn't have enough money. And if they did, they would have put an intern on it and wouldn't have been what ultimately we helped them realize for the movie. And so that also, you know, that's about community. That's about believing in movies. That's about being someone who can help raise up the next generation of filmmakers in, in a world of filmmaking that's all about tentpole movies and IP and all this other stuff. We're keeping the true, what I think is the true independent spirit of movie making alive. And I'm so excited about that too. Kind of goes back to uh, Coppola and Lucas and the inspiration of those guys. Yeah. And what what they were trying to achieve. Well, we're about out of time. I want to direct my audience to TISD.TV. Link will be in the show notes so you don't have to remember that. But that is where you can check out this facility, which is really cool. Website's really great and uh, shows off the work, shows off the facility, and is really well presented, I must say. So thanks, man. Nathan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your candor with some of the business side of this, which I think a lot of my listeners who are in a similar world as you with their working on films and audio, they will appreciate it. So thank you. All right. Thanks. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Nathan Rule here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely voice at the top of the show. As usual, connect with me on LinkedIn or feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.